The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. I mean, uh, money, and he loved animals, so he decided to go down to the zoo and see if he can get a, get a job to feed the animals. And there was no such opportunity available, but the manager looked at the size of this guy, and he had an idea. He said, you know, there's a few animals in our zoo, and they get certain attention. And gorilla is the big one that we have that gets a lot of attention in traffic. But he said, unfortunately, it died last week. And he asked him if he was willing to put on a suit and act like a gorilla for a couple of weeks. He said, sure. And he was actually quite successful, you know. He beat his chest, gave roars and so forth. And people were just amazed. They'd never seen a, such an intelligent gorilla. So one day he was swinging on his rope, and unfortunately the rope broke and he fell into the animal next to him, which just happens to be a lion. Oh, he didn't know what to do. He couldn't scream because then people will know that he's fake. So he got into the edge and stayed there, and unfortunately the lion started approaching him. And he just got so scared, he just had to yell for help. And then the lion told him, shut up, stupid, or we, or we will both get fired. Well, the story, the moral of the story, the man was deceitful. So was the lion. They were fooling people and the crowds with their outward appearance. He looked like a gorilla, acted like a gorilla, but he was not a gorilla. Neither was the lion. You can say they were both hypocrites. Get it? It's my dad's joke. But anyways, outwardly they were somebody that they were not inwardly. And we see this issue throughout history, throughout the Bible, and especially in our day of Christianity, a lot of people are walking around identifying themselves as Christians. But as Paul put it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, he said, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And Jesus was not afraid to point out this hippos, to point out the hypocrites. And he especially did it with the religious folks that go to the Sunday schools and show up to synagogues on a weekly basis. I want to show you some examples in Matthew 6, 2, he says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before as you as the hypocrites do in synagogues and in the street. Why do they do that? That they may have glory from men. Matthew 6, 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. And in verses 3 and 4, he says, When you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, the Levite, and the Pharisee passed by? Well, if you think about it, there was nobody around to show off in front of, Right? But I'm sure if they had Instagram back then, they would have snapped the picture, put it on there to show off. And not only in deeds, but also in their tithing. In Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe and mint and all these things. But then he says, you neglected the heavier, weightier matters, justice, mercy, faith. And then he also accused them of being hypocritical in their prayers. Hypocrites, when you pray in Matthew 6, 5, 
should not be like hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues and on the corners of the streets. Why? That they may be seen by men. And he says, surely they already have their reward. Also in fasting, Matthew 6.16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, again, that they may appear to men to be fasting. And he says again, I surely say to you, they have their reward. And Isaiah 29.13 says, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by a commandment of men. Matthew 15, verses 7 and 8 says, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, they were paying attention to all these outwardly things, but nobody paid attention to what they were inwardly. And what was inside is Matthew's 23, 25 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisee hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Folks, how easy it is to camouflage for us and to look a lot cleaner than we are, actually are. It's easy to mask and cover unrighteousness with a righteous look, right? Maybe a righteous action or go into righteous locations. So the problem, all these people had purity of the look, they had purity of location, purity of activity, but the heart was far from God because it says that it's full of extortion and self-indulgence. And they got this external facade, you know, that shows people around that you and God are an up and up, you and God are buddies, you're hanging around with God, you're close. But in this same Sermon on the Mount later, we'll get to it in chapter 7, Jesus says this, not everyone, in verse 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, have cast out demons in your name, did all these wonderful and wondrous works in your name? And I will declare to them, and I say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Everything that they said did in the Lord's name, prophesied, cast out demons, all these things we've done in your name, he calls all those works lawlessness. Why? Because there was no purity in the heart. They did it all for show. They did it all for gain. As we read in those verses where it says they have glory before men. They want to be seen before men. They disfigured their faces to appear to people that they're fasting and so forth. So you see the thing here, it shows us it's, it's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Praying, fasting, those are Good things, right? Don't you want the Christian to do those things? Doing charitable deeds? But Jesus says, surely I say to you, they already have their reward. And what's their reward? Depart from me. I never knew you. And then Jesus says this. After he points out their hypocrisy, double-mindedness, and then he says for in chapter 5 of Matthew in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Calls them hypocrites, then he says you might be righteous, more righteous than the Pharisees. And it was confusing to the people because during that time in society, Nobody could be more righteous than a Pharisee. Why? Because the outward, that's what people look at. 
You know, they're fasting, they're doing all these things, they're doing charitable deeds, uh, praying. How can you get more righteous than a Pharisee? But Jesus said these words in a parable in Luke 18. I want to look at verses 9 through 14. And it says, he also spoke in this parable, and I want to point out the first problem. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And I'm sure this is the story you all heard before. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other the tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. See the problem in the first verse? Trusted in themselves. Why? Look at the next verse. I fast twice a week. I give tithes. All of I possess. You've got to think about it. All those, everything that they possess, they give 10%. You know, they're growing mint. They're going to give 10% of mint. And then in verse 13, it says, And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And see, even though the Pharisee, he wasn't lying, he did all these things. And we're supposed to do all those things. Ties and all that stuff. But as Luke 18 and verse 9, the very first verse we read, the problem is they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And you know, we as people, humans, we're inclined to judge ourselves by the worst instead of the best. And what I mean by that, we're all tempted to feel better about ourselves when we see somebody doing a terrible thing that we've never done, right? We think we're more righteous than somebody else because they sin a little differently than we do. And a good person always looks down on the one who seems to be less good than himself. And people often compare themselves to this false standard that they have and not God, which is the ultimate standard. And what's interesting is they trusted in themselves and they were in their righteousness. And these are, remember when Nicodemus came, a Pharisee, to Jesus? He said, you're a teacher of Israel. This is the Pharisees. They were teachers, right? Well, apparently, they didn't read Isaiah 64, 6 where it says, but we are all like unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are filthy rags, that they trusted in themselves and their, old, their righteousness, but this here it says, your righteousness is like dirty rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities are like a wind, have taken us away. Not only that, they fail to acknowledge that they need the same exact mercy that the tax collector was praying for. Be merciful to me, sinner. Because they didn't humble themselves. If you look at 18, Luke 18, 14, they're not showing mercy. Thank goodness I'm not like this tax collector. And when you don't show mercy, it indicates you never truly received mercy. Because they had a prideful heart. They were not humble. Well, a prideful heart can never be a poor in spirit, right? And never say, I'm bankrupt. It doesn't mourn over sin. They're not meek. They're not teachable. They're not merciful. And not only that, they were teaching what they were really teaching is others to do the same thing as they did. You know, one of the examples we see in Mark 7, 
verses 8 through 13. Jesus says, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers, cups, and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you keep your tradition. See that? They rejected it. You know why? Because they couldn't keep it. And to make themselves feel better, they came up with a man tradition, which they tried to keep. And then in verse 10 says, For the Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But then verse 11 says, But you say, this is what they teach, If a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, meaning that is the gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. Making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, down, and many such things you do. You see, they misinterpreted the law of Moses, and really they didn't have the, they couldn't keep it. And again, they invented their own laws they could keep so they can satisfy their own conscience. And if you look at here, really, they're hungry for money. They weren't hungry for righteousness. And that's what's happening in a lot of churches today. Give your money to God. They didn't care about the money to God. Don't take care of your parents. Don't take care of your loved ones. Just give your money to God. And if you say you're giving it to God, we can bypass this commandment that we have from God. So the outside, they said, it's a gift to God. But in the inside, it was more for their own pocket. So the Pharisees could well be characterized as saying, blessed are the outwardly clean, for they shall see God. You see, all these good deeds that do not come from a genuinely good heart have no spiritual value. In Matthew 23, 28 says, even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So you see, the way you can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees is to have those things, to do the prayer, to do the fasting, to tithe, but you have to have a pure heart for it to count or have any worth spiritually. And that's our text for today. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5 eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And meaning, if you don't have a pure heart, you're not going to see God. Jesus said that this inner man, the core of our being, requires purity, and we'll talk about that here. And folks, this was not something new that Jesus was teaching. It's all over the Scripture, purity of the heart. But I want us to have an understanding what that word pure means. First, it's nothing new, because if you go to Psalm 24 and verses 3 and 4, it says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Who can appear before the Lord and stand in his holy place? Verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul into an idol nor sworn deceitfully. So it's not just our external conduct is upright, but there's something internally. So I want you to kind of think of purity, and I'm going to give you a word, and think of this word throughout the sermon. It is integrity. It's integrity. Because nobody can truly be pure. So we're going to define this word pure. But think of the word integrity. Because integrity, if even if you look it up in a dictionary... It's a state of being whole, complete, undivided, a condition of being unified, sound in construction, 
internal consistency or lack of corruption. And the reason I want you to think of the word integrity, because in the original language, that's what it really means. And one of the translations, if you look at Psalm 15, and this comes from a New American Standard Bible, and the first two verses says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Kind of the same, exact same thing, right? But then he says, he who walks, we read in the pureness of the heart, but here says, who walks with integrity in works of righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. So again, 5.8 says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And again, the word does not have to do much with cleanliness, although that's inferred. It has to do more of unity or a singleness of the heart. Blessed are the unmixed. You know, if we take milk and you mix it with water, it's diluted. It's not pure. So when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, Think of the blessed are those who have integrity, who do not have divided hearts or double hearts. Singleness of the heart. Because in the same sermon, chapter 6, why do we need singleness of the heart? Because in Matthew 6, 24, it says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Can't be in love with money and God at the same time. And remember the same type of thing Elijah offered to people in 1 Kings 18.21. He said, and Elijah came to all people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? When you falter in between two opinions, you're double-minded. You're not single-minded. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer a word. You cannot be double-minded You cannot have an impure heart and see God. You must choose one or the other. You want to worship God? Well, you can't do it with duplicity and hypocrisy in your heart. And really, I'm going to give you some verses, but think about this single-mindedness of the heart. In James 4, chapter 4, verse 4, says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes him a self an enemy of God. You know, a lot of Christianity today is we have a Bible in one hand, we got the world in the other hand, right? And we're saying, can't we just all get along? But the Bible says, soon as you do that, soon as you say that, you become an enemy of God. You're no longer God's friend. And then James continues in verse 8. He says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Well, why are they sinners? Why are their hearts unpure? He says, you double-minded. You have what I call a spiritual schizophrenia. You're double-minded, but you have to be single-minded if you want to serve the Lord. Do you guys know what David was called in the Bible? I think everybody knows, right? A man after my own heart, God says, in Acts 13, 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up for, for them David asking king. So he removed Saul and raised up king uh, David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, This is God-given testimony. You know, we hear our testimony, this is God-given testimony. I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Well, what kind of heart does God have? Is there any, any impurity in his heart? And he says, who will do all my will? Now, we're talking about integrity. And I want to use David as an example to illustrate that point. When God looked at David, when God was wanting a king over Israel, he didn't measure him by putting a, you know, how tall he is, 
Because the previous king, Saul, he was a king. When he entered, you knew he was somebody special. He was head taller than everybody else in all of Israel. He was big. He was strong. You can say he's a king. But God says here, I'm not measuring him by all these things, not by size of David's biceps or anything like that. But he's looking at the heart. And what's interesting is when Samuel went to Jesse, to his, to his house, he had lots of boys. He had lots of sons. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, we read this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him, meaning he refused Saul. Who else in this land is going to look like Saul? You want me to get a new king, anoint a new king, but we know there's nobody around looking like that. But he says, don't look at those things. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for the man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at his heart. So God told him this. Samuel goes over there. And one by one, he lines them up. He's like, surely this guy's going to be it. He at least looks like some. So see, even though God told him not to look at those things, he's still looking at those things. He goes to the next one, maybe this one. Nope. And then in verses 10 and 12, it says, Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. So seven, seven people passed by. And he's saying, the Lord didn't choose any of these. And then Samuel looks at Jesse and says, is there anybody else? Like, you have another one anywhere? Because God said in your house. But none of these. Are all the young men here, he says in 11? And then Jesse says, oh, there remains this one guy. He's the youngest. And he's out there keeping the sheep. And Samuel says, go bring him. And we're all going to wait till you come. He's out there somewhere in the mountains, you know. So in verse 12, so he went out and brought him. And look at the description. He was Rudy. He had a perfect skin, complexion. And some translation says his skin was like reddish, tannish, darkish, bright eyes, good looking. And the Lord says, arise and anoint him. God, are you sure we got all these enemies and we're going to put a pretty boy as a king? But what's a man after God's own heart? It's a man of integrity. And look at some of these scriptures. I want to give you some. There's going to be lots of scriptures. You don't have to write them down, but I want you to understand how God looks for integrity in our lives and what it means. And this is what David wrote. You're going to see what made David the man he was. What made him a man after God's own heart? In Psalm 7, verse 8, says, The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. See that word, integrity? Meaning, I'm not double-minded. In Psalm 25, verse 21, let, let integrity and my uprightness preserve me, for I will wait for you. David knew when he waited on God, his great resource was his integrity. In Psalm 26, 1, it says, Vindicate, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord shall not slip. In verse 11, it says, But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. And I'll give you one more, just one more. Psalm 41, 12. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face. So you see, you're catching on. How was he a man of God's heart? When God looked at David and said, David, there's the man of my own heart. And what was David's heart? It was a pure heart, meaning integrity, 
It was single-minded. It wasn't double-minded. Now, you need to understand, did David sin? Of course he sinned. And actually, he sinned horribly. He failed God. And when David sinned, it broke David's heart as well as it broke God's heart. But you know something about a man of integrity? He never offered an alibi for his sin. What he always offered was a confession. That's what it says. In Psalm 51, 4, against you, you only I have sinned. And remember, we talked about that when he committed adultery. Well, didn't you murder? Didn't you do all these things against other people, against your own family? But the priority was, I sinned against God. That's what broke his heart more than anything else. And David knew what it was to be right, and David knew what it was to be wrong. But one thing he was, he was single-minded. He was not a hypocrite. And you know, when David passed and uh, David's son Solomon became king, listen to these words God uses in describing David when he's talking to his son Solomon. And he's given him instructions. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 4, he tells Solomon, Now if you walk before me as your father David walked, how did his father walk? In integrity of the heart. In integrity of heart and uprightness. So purity really means integrity here. Do we have this kind of integrity? And where is this integrity? What's the place of this integrity? In your heart, right? As we read in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure integrity in the heart. So, blessed are those who have integrity in the heart. Well, what does heart mean? We talk about giving your heart to Jesus, and you know, sometimes the skeptics say, what are you going to do? Reach out, rip out your heart, and give it to Jesus? Like, well, what does that mean? Now, the Bible uses the word heart. It's not just talking about the muscle that pumps blood and so forth. It's talking about the seat of emotions, talking about our inner person, what I call the master control. It's more than just the mind. It includes our emotions. It's total of our ability to think, feel, decide, actions. They're concentrated on God. I like the way uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, paraphrased this, and he said, Blessed are those who are pure, not only on the surface, but in the center of being at the very source of every activity. And when people fall in love, what do we call them? Sweethearts, right? Not airheads, sweethearts. Because that's the core of the individual. And the heart talks about your inner being. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. And before you're going to be pure or have any actions that are worth in the spiritual realm, you must be pure in heart before you can be pure in any other way. But it brings an issue because now we understand what pure means, we can understand what heart means, means our inner being. So if we have integrity in our inner being, pure in heart, we see God. But the same word of God tells us this. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 through through 10. This heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your inner being. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. That's what Jeremiah says about our heart. It's desperately wicked. Look again in verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So how can it be pure? We understand what pure is. And you know, there was a Russian novelist, a poet, and he said this, I do not know what a heart of a bad man is like but I do know what a heart of a good man is like. 
and it's terrible. You see this heart that's deceitful above all things, and this word desperately wicked, it's interesting, though it's translated a little differently in our Bibles, but in the original it says the same word is used in Jeremiah 15, 18. It says, why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? This wound incurable, you can't clean, you can't cure it, is the same word that's used for desperately wicked. It means, folks, though we understand what our heart should be, we should have integrity, it means we have a heart problem. We have a heart disease, and I'm not talking about physical. But you see, as we read, this disease resists all medication because it says refuses to be healed. And all these spiritual exercises, all the spiritual diet in the world will not cure the disease of the heart. It resists medication. And that's what the Pharisees didn't understand. And we don't understand that, that the problem is our hearts. And what we're trying to do is medicate it by doing good works and all that stuff, but yet, still, our heart is diseased. There's no cure for it. The only cure is for you to get a heart transplant. You've got to get a heart transplant. But we're trying somehow, some other way to cure the problem of sin. So we can reform the outside, but if I have, you know, I think I look pretty healthy, right? But if I have a heart condition, it doesn't matter what I look like. I got a disease of the heart. I'm diseased. The heart is deceitful above all things. And a lot of Christianity today is we think we can just reform outside somehow and we fail to understand that the heart of the problem is the human heart. And that's the reason just this reformation, if you would, is not any useful without regeneration. And what I mean by that, let's say a man who's a drunkard, right? The drunk all the time. He cleans up on the outward. What's drinking without getting saved? Well, he's still going to go to hell. Just he's going to go sober. The problem is not on the outside primarily. Sometimes it does show a condition that's on the inside. The problem is on the inside. And Jesus explained this in Mark 7, verses 20 through 23, and he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man? And he says, for from within, out of our heart of men, this inner being, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornification, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceitful, lawlessness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. All these things are in your heart. You may say, well, murder is not in my heart, right? Fornification, not in my heart. Adultery, not in my heart. Blasphemy, not in my heart. And when a person says that, it just shows you that they really don't know their heart. You know, I was watching a documentary on the Holocaust, and they were watching the trial in Israel of uh, Adolf Eichmann. And he admitted not liking Jews and viewing them as adversaries and so forth, and he was found guilty. And he was sentenced to death by hanging. And what was interesting afterwards, you know, they had all these witnesses uh, testify, yes, he was this, and he was doing that, and so forth. And, you know, you, you could get pretty emotional, and they showed some of that footage. But when everything was said and done, they asked a couple of Holocaust survivors how they felt in that, if they 
felt that the justice was finally served and so forth, and if they were happy with the outcome. And one man replied, he said, what this man has did was horrible. And it's just frightening to think that another human being can do such things to other human beings. But he went on to say this, and this is what really stood out to me. He said, but what's even more frightening, each of us is capable of doing the exact same thing. Because the heart is the problem. And we think like, There's no potential evilness that looks in my heart. But the Bible says all these things, they're there already. They're there. You ever seen a wormhole in an apple? I shared with you the story. I throw those apples away until a man told me, like, when I was little, said, no, it means the worm is no longer in the apple. It crawled out. How did that happen? Well, when it was a little flower, it was already planted there. And as it grew, the worm went out. And that's how it is. We're already born with this, right? You don't have to teach the baby to be selfish. When the baby's hungry, he's going to let you know, right? You don't care if you're sitting anywhere or you need quiet time or you didn't get enough sleep. It's going to let you know. So diagnosis is a heart is deceased, diseased. Not only has this disease, but it also says it's, again in Jeremiah 7, 9, deceitful about all things. So I started looking up the word deceitful. You know, it came up with the word Jacob. That's where the word deceitful came from. So anybody, any Jacobs in here? No? It's okay because Jesus later transformed that name to mean prince. So you can be proud but Jacob, that's what it meant. Why? Because he was a deceiver. Remember that story with Jacob? who uh, received blessing from his father who was old and blind. And you see, Jacob deceived his father. He put some, as we read, goat hair on the back of his head and so forth, pretended to be Esau. And the old blind Isaac was simply just went on his feelings. And that's what a lot of people do these days. You know, he felt Jacob's hand. He said, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are like, something's not making any sense here. He questioned. But he just went on and blessed him anyway. He made a mistake. And that's what we do as many Christians. We went by feeling rather than what the word teaches us. And people are so easily deceived by this fake righteousness that when we look on the outside. And what God is saying, your heart is a Jacob. It's desperately wicked. And you know, we're looking at the news today and we're saying, oh, the media is so deceitful to these days, right? Hollywood deceitful. The White House is deceitful. But the most deceitful thing is none of these things. The most deceitful thing in the world is the human heart, which leads other things to be deceitful. It's deceitful above all things. And I'm not just saying it. The Word of God is saying it. And you know, sometimes I hear this and how foolish it is to Take advice of the world. You ever hear people say, just follow your heart? That's just the dumbest thing you can tell anybody. And I'm sorry for saying that, but it is. Follow your heart. Your heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful. And Proverbs 28, 26 says, he who trusts in his own heart is a what? A fool. So we talked about deceit. Disease. We have this disease. It's deceitful. And then let's talk about a little bit about diagnosis. Look at Jeremiah 17.10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Now, you see, 
The diagnosis is you can't search your own heart. Right? You can't. How can a deceitful heart investigate a deceitful heart? Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure for my sin. So who does the diagnosis here? We read in that verse, I, the Lord, search the heart. It's God. It must be God himself. For a deceitful heart trying to investigate a deceitful heart or diagnose it, it's, it's impossible. Not only that, he reviews the heart. I search the heart. Look at verse 10 again. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his doings. That's why David prayed and said this, Psalm 26, 2. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. David didn't say, I'm going to go investigate my heart. I'm, I'm righteous. Let's see, I'm doing all these good things. David's praying, even though I'm a Christian and all that stuff, he's still praying, say, God, investigate me. Examine me. Is there anything else that I'm missing? Because I don't trust in myself to investigate myself because my inner being is deceitful. Because God has these x-ray eyes, and he sees things that I don't see this morning. You know, you see me preaching up here today. You see me physically, but God sees my heart. God sees your heart with what you're sitting here, past your beautiful outfits, because you always look so holy on Sundays. But if I put you in some L.A. traffic, I'm sure some of that holiness will get away real quick. But not only he searches and diagnoses the heart, but then he reveals it because David says, examine me, try and test my heart. Well, now he has to reveal it. And how does he reveal it? If you look at Jeremiah 17, 10, again, it says, I test the mind. Again, that's the control center, but the heart is the master control. God looks in your heart. God searches your heart. He reviews your heart, and then he reveals it to you. He says, I tell I test the mind. And what that means is God allows circumstances to come in your life to see how you react to those circumstances. For example, God give me patience. What do you think God's going to do? He's just going to do some fairy dust on you and you got patience like that? No, he's going to send you some circumstances, right? He's going to put you in positions where you will need to display some of that patience. And really, what we pray for God is when he sends those circumstances, what, what, what do we pray? God, change my circumstances. <laughs> Not, right? Not change my heart or thank you for revealing this to me, that I need to work on this, which is change the circumstances. You see, those circumstances, your reactions to those prove what you are. I think everybody in here probably has been rude to somebody in their life, right? We've been rude to some people. You don't have to answer, but, but what, what's, what's the thing? Well, that person made us mad, let's say. person made you mad. Well, a person made you mad, but they didn't put that rudeness in you, did they? It was already there. All they did was press the button. And that's how God reveals it. And sometimes, you know, we think it's in not, it's not in me, not, you know, but sometimes we're surprised. I never thought I was able to do those things. I never thought I would say those things. Because you didn't know that down in that pit that's called the human heart, that's where all those things are. And we can mask it so well for a while. But then the right circumstances come, and those things just start to spill out. But not only he reviews it, diagnoses it, 
reveals it. He also rewards the heart, how you react. And when God comes to judge, if you're a Christian, it's not going to be looking at what, primarily what you did, but primarily who you are. Look at 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. And he instructs us, therefore, judge nothing before the time. You know, we can't judge people by a moment. And he says, until the Lord comes, and until the Lord comes, all those people have time to repent. But he says, the Lord will bring both, bring to light the hidden things, even the things you don't know, of the darkness, and revealed the counsels of the heart. And then each one's praise will come from God. How you live your life? Secret things, hidden things. You'll get praise from God because God doesn't see as man. So I'll use this point. You'll say, well, Cornet was a pastor and so forth, and, you know, he's going to heaven. But there's things that you might not know. I'm just using this as an example. Don't worry. But there's things you might not know. And while I outwardly appear so holy, I preached, I did all these things, you know, vacuumed the church and all those things. But God's not going to look at those things. He's going to say, hey, yeah, you did all those things, but you have a wicked heart. You never got a heart transplant. Depart from me, all who practice lawlessness. Because God is the doctor. We can't cure it. We have to have a transplant. And in Jeremiah 17, 14, it says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Well, remember it said that heart is incurable. This disease that resists all medication because we need a transplant, and here's who offers that. I shall be healed, save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. When you get saved, you get a new heart. You need a new heart. You need to be born again. And that's how he changes. He gives you this new heart. In Jeremiah 24, 7, God says, Then I will give them a heart. And you know, sometimes I write these things, why? Well, so they can know me, that I am Lord, they shall be my people. In Jeremiah 22, 39, he says, then I will give them one heart, one way, why? That they may fear me. That is righteous fear, that is not, oh, God's going to strike me down with the lightning. Reverent fear, respectful. In Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, that is the Holy Spirit, and take the stony, this heart, out of their flesh. Yeah? That's not, I'm going to try to medicate it or give it some something. He says, I am going to take it out and give them a heart of flesh. He's going to take the stone out and put a different heart. That's the heart transplant. He gives you a new heart. And you cannot be pure in heart without this new heart. You see, first of all, how we go down to this Beatitudes. First one is in 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. You're a bankrupt sinner. You realize that. Then you're broken over it. You're blessed are the mourn. Thirdly, you yield yourself to him. You become meek. Here I am, God. You will do your will. And then he puts this hunger in there. What do you hunger for? Righteousness, thirst after it, you thirst for Christ. Then you realize all those things as you pursue Christ. You display more mercy because you start to realize more and more how merciful God was to you. And then you start living with a pure heart. And the interesting thing, all of this, it's a work of God. It's not of you. It's not of you. 
all of it. God gives you a new heart. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That's it. You're going to see God. A lot of people want to see God, right? Old Testament prophets and just ask people, everybody wants to see God. But there's something about sin that blinds us, even in Christian life. And 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, whose minds of God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not shine on them. They're blind. Well, why are they blind to God? Because they're blind to their own sin. They're not poor in spirit. They want to see God. People want to see God. But, you know, if you think about what other people do, they want to see God. You ever see those people or live in monasteries and so forth? They do all these Ritual things, they try to separate themselves, they live out in the mountains, so they're not. But one person you can't get away from is yourself. And that deceitful heart that's in you. You know, a lot of people go on different pilgrimage and so forth, and, but you still don't have a pure heart. And when you have this pure heart, you will see God. And folks, it's not just in the future sense when you get to the kingdom. You see, the purer the heart gets, the clearer God becomes. The purity of the heart cleanses us and lets our eyes see God. God is made visible. And again, it's not in the future sense. You can see God right now. That's why in Hebrews eleven twenty-seven, it talks about Moses says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. And then it says, as see in him who is invisible. Here's Moses. You can live in the kingdom of the Pharaoh and so forth, but no, I'm going to have some integrity in my life. I can't do this. This is sinful. And he was able to see God, seeing that invisible. You'll see him Work in your circumstances. Folks, every Christian should see him in nature. With all the rain we had, the storms and so forth. That's, that's all God. You will see him in scriptures. This Bible, the word of God, will become a flame to you. It will become real. Not just a textbook. But it's this impurity of the heart we need to understand separates us from God. It's our double-mindedness when we're trying to hang on to God and then try to be pleasing to the world or the culture and so forth. And yeah, yeah, we no. If God says no, then it means no. It doesn't matter what the culture says. And a lot of things that we say yes to culture, and the problem is because we don't know the Word of God. If you know the Word of God, then you'll know what to say to the culture. And this impurity separates us from God. In Isaiah 59 uh, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand has not shortened that he can't save, nor his heart is heavy that he can't hear. We pray, we do all those things, but what, God can't save anymore? Or he can't hear our prayers? And verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So that's what impurity of the heart does for us. It separates us. And only purity of a heart through Jesus Christ will reconcile men to God by faith. All of this is done already. By faith, God has done this through his son, Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And Acts 15, 9 says, It made no distinctions between them, purifying their hearts by how? By faith. And for us, purity of the heart is impossible apart from the saving, sanctifying grace that's given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and then guides us by the Holy Spirit. Only God can cleanse your heart from all its impurities. And I know we're just kind of running on time, so I'll rend with this verse as David prayed again in 5110. And I hope... It's a prayer of each of us today, which says, Create in me 
a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And that's what God does for all those who believe and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for this worship service that we had, for what you spoke to my heart, and that we really need you to examine our hearts. Sometimes we get mixed up when we examine our own lives and we say, well, I didn't do anything wrong or make up excuses. Why? Because we trust in ourselves, trust in our own righteousness, just like the Pharisees. But, Father, let us give you that authority to examine our hearts. Not only examine them, but to reveal to us what's truly in there so we can truly be pure in heart and that we see you in this life and the next. And as we leave here today, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray, amen.